Alright, and welcome back again for whatever reason our listener seems to have. I assume it's pathological at this point. We are still talking about, well, world design, or at least the basics thereof. Uh, with me is Karis Noir. Waka waka. <laughs> we have Fred. Uh, hola. Jonathan is here as well. Hi, team. We have the infamous Cavoir. I might actually say something this episode. (laughs) (laughs) Perhaps. We also have Mark. Hello. And we have Rob. Yes, we do. Rob, fully online. Perfect. So... Now, this is a continuation of last week's episode. So, where we're going to continue from is the next question on our list. And this is the one that honestly is the really big one, which is what benefits does world design have in terms of game design? Anybody want to go first? Sometimes. Uh, okay, actually, <clears throat> uh, the benefits it has is that like you can then have a jumping-off point to decide what kind of mechanics you need, where you want the game to go, what kind of stories you want to tell, um, because those are directly tied to how you design your world and what your setting is. So then you, you have that jumping-off point, and you can also use that um, that kind of cultural currency that is inherent in a lot of settings and world to kind of fill in things in play, you know, and give people a language, a like narrative language to speak in. Exactly. I, I think even just taking it from like the way I describe what my view of world building is, I think it's the intrigue that it sets up. It's, um, it's what is interesting in the setting. What do you want players and the game master to interact with? And how are you? How are you defining everything so that players are able to gravitate towards the the fiction in that space? So it it has a lot of responsibility for drawing people in and a buy in. Yeah, I, it should be it should be stated that utopia and ideal societies are boring, and you don't want to play in those kinds of things unless you're in unless we're playing through their collapse uh that's that's part of the problem with middle earth is that it's it yes it has conflict but so many areas are perfect yeah i think star trek has a similar issue although star trek's thing is about a post-scarcity society basically coming into contact with non-post-scarcity societies and then also places that still f- have just not given up on conquest for whatever reason. But it still means you can still have a ut- utopian society, roughly speaking. But as long as you collide it with a- with things that aren't it, that's fine, I think. I mean, that's kind of well, true. The, col- with... the collision in Star Trek, it comes from the Prime Directive. Because it-, it sets up its own conflict. I-, I think a better example would actually be the culture novel. Because very explicitly, the in that case, it's the the fact that they are in a post scarcity environment that becomes 
the conflict. Because it's like, if you have absolutely everything you could ever imagine, anything you could want, you're basically immortal, you can live as long as you feel like, you're such a ridiculous military superpower that nobody can scratch you, you can have any food you want, any, any concept you can imagine, you can have it all. Any that orgy actually, you can picture. Yeah, that's actually also included. Like, they basically have things like, if you want to change, like, gender on a whim, you can do that as well, and they'll, like, be able to do it in, like, five minutes, kind of. What setting is this? The cult, <laughs> it's called the Culture Series. Huh. Like, it's... Ian M. Banks? Yeah, it, it's like, it's like the, uh, like, the concept is they're... They're so far into the concept of being completely beyond needing anything that it actually becomes a problem. Like, actual individuals, it's like, how do you give your life meaning? How do you do something that matters at this point? Like, that actually becomes, like, a pretty interesting plot point, and it's something that because of the nature of the design of the world, it makes something that would be fun to read about. Maybe not necessarily play a game in, though. Like, all of those kinds of uh, conflicts that you deal with, although it's interesting to read, it's like, how do you actually turn that into game mechanics that are fun? Right, like I said, you, and I'll amend it to say, <clears throat> utopias are boring and unsustainable. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in and play with sort of world building versus game design and, and how they interact, <coughs> excuse me, in my opinion. Um, so I think at least in the games that I've worked on, I come at them with this focus about is the focus on the setting or is the focus on the characters? And when I have a really sort of lush, setting in my mind i i develop that and then i try to design a game that works within and plays with the setting where if i have an idea about characters i might either make the setting very small or unimportant or create a utopia where it doesn't really matter and then i can focus on character development and relationships. Um, and it's just one can allow the other sort of like one setting can allow a certain type of gameplay and another can allow a, another type of gameplay. Hmm. So you're saying that it informs how you approach like the, the direction of your mechanical design. I actually find that a little strange coming from you because your game is pretty much set up so that almost any kind of uh, setting actually fits within it. Yeah, that's true. And I wish that I was done more games so that I can make my point. But uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. and I know it's just a small one, but the, the game Skin Knees and Wild Stories is, in my mind, that's all about a time and a place. Um, and so that one's setting strong for me. 
settings important. The map that it will uh, include will be important. <coughs> Jesus, sorry. Um, yeah, and so um, I don't tackle all my games the same way. Uh, it just when yeah, the setting will influence the mechanical choices I make. Which makes sense because I think even even the idea of having like a generic setting, you still include elements of incorporating that setting into your game design. Like you've you've decided with uh, cuts to the chase how much the setting doesn't matter to the story you want to tell, but you still allow for space for the setting to exist and for the players to bring that forward so that they become invested in the characters and in the, the action of the scene. Yeah, absolutely. The setting is important. It's just not the focus. Uh, of the, the, of the design. Sorry. Yeah. 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 The, set, or sorry, the setting is needed for the play, but it's Correct. not the focus of the design. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I think, I think I, I approach something very similar to that with, um, with Praxis because it's very much like understanding what, what I can get from it, like what the setting provides in terms of like what the game design aspect needs from uh, establishing this world. And I don't care about establishing a specific setting in the game, but I know that world building needs to exist within it. So how do you, how do you design around filling in that space? Um, so it sounds like what you've done with Cuts to the Chase is sort of um, allow the characters to fill it in because I think there are certain aspects of your game rules where you stated, like, you describe what the scene is, right? And then I think that that's one way of approaching, like, this is what the responsibility for world-building is in your specific aspect of the game because you're saying... Uh, this is the buy-in that we need from the players to be able to sit down and enjoy the game. So I'm using a flexible setting in order to allow people to impose whatever they want to, to feel attached to their characters, um, to feel attached to the, the narrative that you're designing. And I think I use the same technique with Praxis. Um, and I think a lot of more bound systems tend to use different aspects of world building to try to get that uh, investment, that it's some aspect of, oh, this is a really interesting world. I want to explore it as opposed to um, imposing what you already want onto the game world. Like, I think if you were to take, I don't know, um, Ashes, or if you were to take Sayorsa, you've got such a rich... Um, setting to explore that that becomes the buy-in well that's the intent anyway but exactly yeah. <clears throat> yeah that that's absolutely right and but but going back to what jonathan said for just a second um and and talking about cut to the chase where where the players are doing all of the world building virtually um what's what's interesting to me about that is as soon as you define the the uh what do you call the what do you call the um the players in that there's there's the 
hunter and the prey yeah so as soon as you define what the hunter and the prey are um you've done like 90 percent of the world building in that game and that that's really interesting to me because is because you have to so like if you're saying like the hunter and the prey is like a motorcycle outlaw and a police officer well now it suddenly automatically fills in almost everything yeah that it point. gives you it gives you so much more than just the nature of those two characters like you've now filled in you know a whole bunch uh of of the world like you've done a lot of the world building now um and yeah, you've you've basically done yellow knife 1975 but anchored around the roles of the game yeah which is really that's a really cool way to do it and <clears throat> the way the way mark does it in praxis is he asked the players to do that too but prior to character generation like he there's questions about the like a questionnaire that you fill out that i really like that when when jonathan and i did it like it, it produced this totally badass world that we were both like totally psyched to play in like right at that moment yeah um, there, there's still a game waiting to be played there for sure That's, yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. i want to play in that world um but it's because of that like the game allowed us to do that world building and fill in the things all the gaps with stuff we thought was cool that it developed into a setting we thought was cool. Um, and when you're doing, and that's, that's the advantage in game design, the benefit of doing the, the generic Emergent or the building. universal system in, yeah, the, the work that has to be done when you're, and that that's not to say that like doing, doing it like that is easier because you have to, you have to construct really good questions for the players and that takes effort. But when you're doing a bound setting, Oh, let me just, let me just get to the end of this. When you're doing a bound setting and you <clears throat> are doing the work, a lot of people I think would be listening to this for, if there's anyone listening, but anybody who's actually interested in world design would want to know, like, how do I design a cool world? Um, and part of it is going to be to, you're going to find the benefit in asking the questions like Jonathan and Mark are asking in their game to yourself and coming up with answers to those questions that you find compelling. That's exactly and, what I was going to say. Yeah. Oh, well, great. You're ultimately going to be asking the same questions, whether it's like if you're designing a setting that exists within a bound universe in a game, or if you need this to happen from the players as they play the game or in a generic or universal setting it's the same set of things that you're going to need because these are these are the aspects that define what players are interacting with what they're playing at um and i i remember when i was trying to figure out the set of questions for praxis of what to ask i was looking at how authors approach world building um, and I looked at sort of the questions that can help you develop worlds there. And that allowed me to understand sort of the scope of like, why is this interesting? Like, why, why is it that we care about um, these aspects in, I don't know, Harry Potter? Because um, there are specific elements that I think we want to uh, relate to. We want to know where danger is. We want to know where mystery is. Um, and those are the same kinds of things like the, the, that's the basis for all the different questions that I ask is 
where are these elements in the world and how can I uh, highlight them so that players can interact with and feel excited about them and, and uh, define their own areas of interest. Well, it seems in particular you're pointing out that this is the interesting concept you want to deal with. Define the interesting concept so you know it exists so you can mm-hmm. go interact with it. Exactly. Yeah. World building ultimately is is a is presenting the opportunity for players to buy in and immerse themselves. Yes. So, so can I can I ask Mark um, before we dive into the aspects of bound settings? Um, why? Did you avoid a bound setting? Uh, why did you go for the questions instead? So I felt like um, when I was designing the first version of Praxis, I took a lot of the elements that I already loved in role-playing games. And a lot of that was filled with the sort of fantasy tropes. Like I took, I took a lot from D and D and Shadowrun and uh, Star Wars and the, the games that I played and enjoyed, and I f- shoved it into Praxis, um, and it became heavy and clunky and it didn't really fit. So what I when I sat down and revised the game, I had to ask the questions of why does this exist in the game, and does it help me tell the story that I want to tell. Um, and I got to a point where I realized that, no, the story that I care about is the character. I want to see the character's evolution and how they grow through experiencing the game world. I don't care about the specifics of what that game world is. Um, so I, I wanted to get to the crux of exactly what is um, what the experience is that I want to play at. And I'm using the aspects of the setting to create the buy-in so that if you have a um, 30 minute session where you sit down and you make a world and you're invested in like exploring that world, then you want to play at the, the character growth experience. Um, so the bound setting didn't matter for the play experience. So I got rid of it. Hmm. Oh. Just quickly for myself, for a cut to the chase. It's a short game, and to make it for additional playability, having one setting uh, and specific characters made no sense at all. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it would. Now, to get us on to segueing into our next section there, since we were going to be talking about, you know, games bound to their setting, Kavar, your games are often bound to a setting pretty heavily. So uh, what do you just, mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> no. What are you saying? I don't know. Just like that last one that we were working with playtesting with you. That that's definitely it, pretty. It has bad. a meta setting, but it's like I don't. I didn't tell you what a witch it was. I just said okay. No, you definitely had had a setting set up in mind. Yes, um, I had a specific. How do you personally find your world building influences the way 
you design your games. I, I, okay, so my world building for that game is literally, okay, this is a game about a band of supernatural creatures, and that is the entire world building. Um, <laughs> and the rest of it is just implied by what, the, by what I decided would be cool moves. So, I don't know why you think there's a specific bounce setting No, there. no, there's more to it than that. Like, you definitely had the idea of setting up, like, musical groups and such and building, like, you know, every one of the characters had to have something, uh, some organization that was after them. Oh, right, I forgot about the second aspect of that. Yes, it's a game about, it's also a game about being chased by your past, and, yeah. <laughs> Because I was trying to make it a really, uh, yeah, never mind. Uh, but yes, those are those are definitely setting things, and they were setting things because I I played a game that was that that was really cool, and I wanted to, to emulate it and make something that's better designed for it than what I was actually playing it in. I don't know <laughs> much deep world building you expect out of that thing. I wrote it. I wrote ninety percent of it in t- under two hours. <laughs> <laughs> pretty good actually <clears throat> no it actually was really good for two hours work not a problem at all yep i mean i'm not gonna say it. i think it's a bad or terrible game i'm just saying uh, when you said it's a very specific bound setting i'm like a lot of the things are not very specific there's a very specific thing going on but a lot of the details and a lot of the nature of the world is left up to what happens during the game like that would be like saying monster hearts as a as a balance setting because it is set at a high because it is set it, it is more probably set in a high school and it's probably monsters in a high school yes okay i mean mine's a bit more specific than that i still consider that to be kind of a fairly solid setting like it does yeah, specify a lot of information of what will be going on, what's available. Yes, it, it does. But it also expect. does. It also doesn't specify a lot of information at the same time. I guess there, there's this. We're talking about a weird design on line on what is generic and what is bound, and we don't quite agree because there's a lot of weird middle ground. Um, I wouldn't. I'd consider, despite the fact that there's a very specific thing going on, there's. It's not. I wouldn't really call. In a bound setting, I don't know. What well, Kevor, Kevor, your games tend to be bound around a specific idea. Yes, prim, a specific premise. Yes, the, they're not, bound not to necessarily their to a specific world. Yes, so they're yeah. you're right. So they're that bound is in a different way. Of, yeah, I didn't think of it as binding, but that is. But since I make a game that has a very specific premise that I don't want to simulate in a different way that's how the game gets created i get i guess they are extremely bound to their premise so i i create the game backwards from figuring out what the premise i want i want is and trying to allow plenty of permutations within that premise is my world building so it's a bit weird so i'm having trouble deciding how to answer the question on how i approach world building and i guess i kind of answered it (laughs) I, I think, think you I got did, it. It, I think I, you it does raise a question. I think we talked about uh, setting and world building informing theme, but um, are we confusing the two right now? Like, are we confusing theme can, with world building? I think they can go both directions or actually even in some cases supplant one another. Yeah. 
Well, uh, we aren't really talking about theme here because we're talking about like a very specific thing going on in the setting. So that is okay. Yeah, like still more setting than than theme. Okay, fair yeah. enough. Well, well, You're you. very bound. In a way, yeah. if you set the like a specific thing that happens, because that specific thing can happen and because it ends up being an important part of the game it kind of influences the setting by basically yes. creating uh, the setting is, around that yes uh that is something i should talk about it like uh okay so i'm gonna talk about power finding hops games i know it's so strange for me <laughs> anyway um uh, so a lot do of, you even um, know anything about them <laughs> yeah no i don't I'm, i just guess <laughs> anyway a lot of them are not as nearly as specific as mine are, but they're basically they give up they inform the world in two ways. They give you a very generic they give you a generic setting, like they give you this is an urban fantasy game, and then they say this is the specific type of urban fantasy game this is. But it's still fairly generic, and then they somewhat inform what's going on by the nature of what they choose to be abilities. And that says a lot about the world too. And so you there's a very so it does do a lot to inform the world, but it doesn't inform very many specific details of the world a lot of the time. Beyond there are vampires is something that's defined, but what that a vampire is isn't necessarily very rigidly defined by the game. I think a I think there are a lot of entry points or different ways to lash system and setting together yes one which is i think like a given for all of cavor's games is that there's a certain aspect of the world or or an event that is the catalyst for the gameplay and ashes is like that as well because of the day of wrath or you can find them together by not necessarily by using a specific catalyst, but a, a certain kind of character activity. Mm-hmm. Like if if the characters are expected to be heroic, both both components of the game have to enable that. Yes. Like there has to be the opportunity to be heroic, and then there has to be the mechanics to allow them to do that. And then there's a third one, I think, which is um, I don't think I'll think of it, so never mind. Scratch the third thing. <laughs> there's a third thing that exists. We don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, I lost it. It's like the Higgs particle of game design. Listeners, if you know what the third thing is, please email flailforward at gmail.com. Or leave a comment in our never use comment section. No. Threats of violence if you want. I mean, we we're good on those too. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I specifically call out free floating hostility as just something you can leave anywhere you want on any of our (laughs) platforms. Yeah. All right. So one thing I'd like to cover as well myself is I think one of the biggest advantages of what world building does in terms of gameplay and game design 
is it opens up the opportunity for um, players to think about things that otherwise they really wouldn't. If you put them in a position with like a species, a culture, um, any kind of technology, you're giving them something to actually start considering that they might not have the tools to work with otherwise. So like as soon as you give them access to like, okay, every character in this game can now fly or they have a jetpack or something similar to that. This changes how players are going to start thinking about like what their characters do just in general. You have the ability to fly. You can go over obstacles. You can avoid that big scary forest that you don't really want to go inside of. You can do all sorts of interesting things. As soon as you set up the world in such a way that these are ideas that the world itself allows for, then you're basically adding potential gameplay elements, not just as gameplay mechanics, but also things for the players to actually think about what they can do with their own character. And those aspects don't have to be physical like the key thing to ashes is that every character has a loss yeah right and the same thing with 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 um with the wanderer wanderlust wanderlust yeah it's it's there's things about the character that are informed by the setting but they're character traits yeah Mm -hmm. but the thing those things are there to express the theme of the game and setting is part of the way that's scaffolded. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't have a track that's literally your past catching up with you. That sounds like something an idiot would do. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Thanks for calling me an idiot, Brad. (laughs) (laughs) Considering I called myself an idiot. We're we're on level playing field here. Yep. It's okay. (laughs) Though Fred did just indirectly tell us what the, uh, you know, to his luggages. <laughs> what? A track. <laughs> One, I mean, that was a two, very tangential space three, walls reference. I get where you were going, but <laughs> Jesus. That was a even for you. Cat, <laughs> that was a really deep cut. Like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> to be fair, it's where my mind went immediately, too. But, <laughs> but I didn't say it out loud. That was my question. I did. <laughs> Where are we? <laughs> right. Somewhere's in left field at the moment. Uh, benefits. So, are we still on benefits of game design? Of yes. uh, world design yeah. to um, game design? Actually, yes. since we are getting pretty late, how about we do one last round of it? Does anybody have anything else to say about the benefits of world design on game design? I, I said all my statements at the start. The main thing we all agree on is buy-in, right? Like player buy-in. That's our main. Yep. That our main takeaway um, from this. I I also I I think my statement about giving players a um a narrative language in which to speak is important. Mm, okay. Yeah. yeah I, I, think, I, I I I can I can totally get on, be on board with that. Yeah. I think buy-in's important. Uh, what Fred was saying as well, <laughs> and the thing about you know 
having tools to actually think about things that you wouldn't think about otherwise. I mean, if that's basically what setting it up is like, it's building a stage for things to take place in, right? Yeah, that's oh, part the of the dreaded yeah. stage metaphor. <laughs> the lovely stage, of course. It's, the stage has really firm or soft walls, it seems, depending on the game. Like, some games you can bend those walls pretty considerably, others not so much. But... Yeah. Alright, so in regards to that, let's segue right into our final thing for the night. So, how much world design do you actually do for a game? Like how Literally as little as possible. <laughs> well, I mean, not just for, like, your personal game, but also, in general, how much world building do you think should be done as a whole? Like, it's going to differ from game to game, but like, I think answering both I, of those... I agree with Fred. <laughs> now, as little as possible might actually be a fairly a large amount. Yeah, like, I would say Rob's game, which has a lot of, a fair amount of setting information as it, is approaching that line of literally as little as possible. Um, but I still yeah. think, especially in terms of a role-playing game... That is the objective that I personally, and I think a lot of a lot more people should be always aiming for. In that I, case, that's kind of more so towards like the narrative. Like when you're writing a novel, you try to use as few words to describe things as possible, just in general. So, same. I mean, it's technically true. It's like, yeah, you don't add anything more than you need to, but you make sure you add everything you need to. But that's kind of a vague answer, too. Okay. I'm going to say this as someone who enjoys doing grand-scale world design. but Literally as much as possible. Say, well, no, expansive world design. But the the absolute minimum you have to do is the character's immediate surroundings. And you have to maintain that no matter what's happening. Yes, which brings us to a side topic, which we, we should probably touch on that we haven't. Some world design is th not only thrust on the players, but is done during the game. And in order to maintain what, what Carr said, it's basically, that does require it on some level. I like that's most, I don't think like Carr... Carrez's uh, stuff actually makes sense in terms of the design by the uh, designer. Like, that's mostly up to the GM to deal with what's immediately next to players. Because, to be fair, in the vast majority of games, the designer will not know what it's going to be. Right. You have to give but them... The that's designer, the whole point of giving... Oh, sorry, go ahead. But the designer does kind of have a responsibility to give the players a tool to do that for themselves. Oh, yes. That's the whole point of Mark's Mark's world building questions and the walkthrough that in my game and like the like naming the roles in Cut to the Chase. Mm -hmm. Those are all yeah. tools that are the designer gives to the players so that they can do that themselves. This yeah. is like, kind of the thing. The designer though normally 
unless you're doing really grand scale and highly detailed world design, the designer the designer's not going to sit out sit down and like just like give an inventory of every room in a building. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they do for yeah, important but don't rooms, though. But yeah, but yeah, exactly. Th- this entire okay, just a second. This entire uh, question, like everything about it, is basically going to boil down to: we have a set amount of world design that needs to take place. Period. It's going to happen whether the designer does it or whether it's handed off to the players to do it themselves. The question mm-hmm. isn't really how much design is in the game because it's basically a fixed amount. Like it doesn't matter if it's written by the designer or the players design it themselves, they're going to come out to about the same amount no matter what. Like I don't think that's accurate at all. I think it no, kind of either. is in the like... sense that the players will not read extra parts of the book that they don't care about, in which case they basically don't exist. And they will add the amount that they want to be there if it doesn't exist. Yeah, but if the players are playing in the Underdark, the entire canon of Faerun still exists. doesn't matter in their world. Like, if they decide... Doesn't matter they don't... To doesn't matter to their gameplay but it's still for some reason it it it, it still matters for there, the... there's a broader scope from which the players can draw in that case yeah mm-hmm. and just because if it, okay so <clears throat> the two the two forks we're talking about is the players coming up with part of the world design as they play uh, within the framework the designer sets out and the other the other fork on that uh, path is the designer or, or world builder has put a canon thing in that path and when the player goes to utilize it they either they either go with the canon or they break from it right and so but they have to the the problem see this is the problem I've, I've had with with games that are that are overly detailed like forgotten realms is a perfect example that you brought up because so much of forgotten realms has been detailed and canonized and like down to like the grain trade of various nations in some of the books like is is detailed and when you that's a con- that's a consequence of D being a generic game the, the people sitting in their offices at TSR or Watsi don't know where any game is going to take place, so they give a whole lot of options. Right, but I'm saying the grain trade is never... It, it, that's never something the GM will reach into the toolkit on the first session and and pull out. Uh, maybe in, like in one town. Like, never is a strong word. I would go sure. I'll say never. Fuck it. The no <laughs> one's basing the game on the 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 trade prices between two different towns on the map and keeping those two things canon the entire way through. It's just unless your name is Theater Molly. No, not even. Or <laughs> maybe not directly or consciously, but you could play a game that is that sets up the PCs as agents but, of one trade 
trade syndicate yes. or any other. Sure, but the thing that's is, the is like gameplay. It, it's drawn from the, the no, trade. Yeah, it is, but like I'm just I'm saying, you're you're when you do that, the canon of the game is either important or it's not, but it's still there. I and, and the designer true. still did the effort to put it there. My now, point was now, more so what, that in a case like the grain trade. It basically doesn't exist. Like they put it in, they no, wrote it in, they've explained the it. But the fact of the matter is that any GM who needs to come up with a description of the uh, the grain trade, they're not even going to look in the book. It basically doesn't exist. They'll make it themselves. It is the same no, they amount won't. of information. I'm not. I'm, I'm saying that's not always the case. I'm saying, but when you're doing that, the, the the point is when you're doing when you're making the choice to look in the book or or not. The fact is still in the book. The fact of the designer's intent is still in the book. We're talking about how deep do you go? Now, your contention, as far as I understand it, is that you don't go that deep because no one's going to bother with it. I would agree. That's why that's part of the that's part of the as little as possible. Once you've done the grain trade thing that nobody's going to read, you've exceeded that. That's part of where the line is. That's my point. That- you don't go that deep. Like I go into far more detail. You just than... said it's not used. No, just because it's not uh, used doesn't necessarily mean that you don't build it. Like I'll still build it That's... internally for my own consistent logic so that I know how other things are, but I won't necessarily put it in the book. I might put but... it in a supplement at some point that people find interesting, but it's not really part of the main game the thing is even if it exists whether it exists on paper or not is honestly irrelevant like if what exists in terms of that individual table at that time is the cumulative amount of what the people at that table actually know and remember regardless of whether it's printed out or written down it it doesn't matter if it exists somewhere as written on a sheet of paper or in a printed published book it matters whether the people at the table at that time when it's relevant actually know it or not and they will either create it or they'll use what already exists but either way the same amount of data is going to exist at that table at that time I'm not arguing no, that I'm, I'm what I'm, what I'm saying, what I'm saying is then you don't need to design it. Like the, the, it, it's wasted effort on the part of a designer to, to wait, put wait, that wait, in wait, there. Hold on. Hold on. If the designer wants to make their world rich to that level of detail, there's no reason why they shouldn't. If that's, if that's the world they want to write, they should write it. But they should also be cognizant that of of the fact that most tables will ignore most of the tiny little details they put in. Well, and I'm, so agree- I'm agreeing with those details in. I'm agreeing with Cat in a sense that like the data is the same. One one it takes a, an amount of effort on the part of the game designer, and the other takes effort on the part of the person running the game, and. Most of the time, the, per- the the person running the game is not going to bother with 
whether or not the designer, I, I mean, I would, I would actually generally say never. I think, I don't think it's going to come up. Like it, it, it's, it, it would be weird. And I don't need, I don't need to go into reasons why it would, but like there, there's, there's enough when you're writing the game, you don't need to write that out is what I'm saying. Like there, you can, you can do it if it's a, if it's a plot point, if there's, there's something interesting about it, but just listing, um, listing trade goods and what crops grow in a region and the livestock they have purely for the sake of listing them for completeness is over-designing. Yes. That's my contention. And no one away. I, I can actually see reasons why it would exist. Like, keep in mind that, yes, the same amount of information is going to exist at a given table, regardless of whether it's written down by the GM or not, or by the game designer or not. Actually, I, I think you should adjust that premise to the same amount of data will be used at any given table. Well, the thing is, if they're not aware of the information, like they can't remember it, then it basically doesn't exist at the table, more or less. Like, for all intents and purposes, the data might exist, but not in, in that place. So it, it basically doesn't exist outside of it. Then it doesn't matter, and why bother? Well, that's the thing. Just because it doesn't apply to every table doesn't mean that it's, it's useless information. Like, let's Then write down reading. everything that exists in a universe. Like, that's... That's... It's a bit of a balancing act between how much information the individual group is going to need. Because not all groups are going to need the same amount of information. Like, right, but, but the, the theming of the game dictates what, where you should draw that line. Like, not always, unfortunately. Mm, like, a theme more of the game or less. can tell you, it can give you a pretty good rough estimate of what's probably important to include, but not always. Like, you can have a game, for example, about exploration, and you can either do that in the sense where the game gives you a lot of actual information of what actually exists to explore or it can just give you information of how to build things so that when you find it you can come up with it at the time of what it is you have discovered like those are both perfectly off ultimately it comes down to how many potentialities does the world builder want to provide for the players? That's totally their choice. To a degree, I think no. there's also uh, the matter that a world builder can build things for their own internal logical consistency that the players do not need to know and will not actually be included. Like, if you look at, like, a show like Star Trek, like we were talking about earlier, they don't go into a lot of detail about how the ships work, but then you'll find, like, uh, you can purchase books where it lists, like, technical readouts and manuals and describes in intimate detail, like, exactly how their ships function. This is not needed on a normal basis, but some people want that information. Now, that comes into, I think, largely a matter of your target audience 
more than the theme of the book, actually, or the theme of the game, is that you basically figure out who is likely to play this game, what information do they actually want from this. No. So, I think... Um, no, I don't think so. I think we should ask the questions of each other instead of debating. Um, so, Rob, how much within the context of Ashes, mm-hmm. how do you... Because I believe you built that setting to get a certain style of gameplay. Um, uh, initially, yeah, but then it, it, it reversed itself. Okay. Sense, so, yeah. but, but how are you drawing that line for yourself to not or do as little as possible? Like, for, for example, me to do as little as possible, I want to fill in exactly the amount the players need in order to fill in the rest of the game with consistency. So, do you so, have a map? Do I have a map of the world? Yeah, no. either in your mind or in the game. In, in the mind, yes. In the mind, yes. So I have to. I, I know where things are located relative to each other. What I don't specify is how many miles it is. Right. Nor and do I specify have... the precise the precise longitude and latitude of anything. Um. And and then you have. Do you name any cities? I name some cities, or... and then I leave other settlements completely unnamed. Okay. So and and that's just a way of it's a way a structure uh, to play it, in. Yes, it's just it, I as 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 Carr was alluding to earlier. Um, yeah, I want to give the players exactly and the and 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 the seneschal, uh, the, the GM to 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 create enough of the world around the players so that they can start doing things, and then the game. The I the intent is for the players then to kind of take over in in the world building and build out the setting of ashes to fit them but that is expressive of one of the themes which is that they they are special within this setting they they are not here for no reason they're literally here because fate decided they should be here for some reason and where they contact the physical reality of the world of ashes it's going to be suited to them in a way that reality might not be to other people so there's a there's a deep thematic reason why i want the players filling in parts of the world right and so yeah i think that's clear how you yeah i have i have a very well I, i don't know if it's a good conception but it's one that has helped me decide what to stick in and what to leave out right um, and and well, has kept that line pretty bright so far. Rob in particular has a game with a very clear focus, and he's very conscious of staying within that focus. So, you know, Rob's not going to do anything like put in, you know, trade routes and and only only where it really matters. Like if there's a big Only one that, really that matters. matters, yeah. But and then you're yeah. you're doing as little world building as possible to support the theme that you intend the players to play by. And and so Car, the, you the, 
sorry the the flip side is that um every piece of information that goes into world building is whether or not the players realize it's there is something that the players don't have to do for themselves it's kind of the big balancing act in the first place of like Right, so we're either the balance choosing is between, to put it in the first place or not for them. Yeah, the balance is between what the designer puts in and what the designer relies on the players to put in. So, and, and that's and, that's a matter of the designer's priorities. Right, and so, Car, you have a generic game, but yet you're very specific in how you. And it's a generic fantasy, but so you're very specific about how you see a world that doesn't exist <laughs> behaving. Um, and you express that in your skills and, and abilities and, and magic systems. Um, is there... Well, it's, actually a, it's actually a universal game that's sort of dressed as fantasy right now. And okay. the... the th- the specific items like skills and things that you you mentioned are in there to support that genre that kind right. of setting it seems more it's universal but it's currently set up as the default game is set up as a fantasy but you could basically transfer it into another setting very easily so yeah. i guess one of my questions is is if you had an understanding of a a skill that could exist in that setting or in that, yeah, that fantasy setting, would you make sure to include it regardless of the um, plausibility of it being used? That's, that goes into my philosophy of game design, especially because I'm doing a universal game that, a universal game is obligated to be comprehensive. So, yeah, there are 151 skills in my game. Right. Which but is that's a lot, and most players won't use them, but a lot of them are included to remind the players that those things happen in the game world, not necessarily that they'll do them. And that's important for you in your game design. Yes. Mm-hmm. And because that facilitates any given table running a more legitimately functional world. Right. And I the one last thing I'm curious about about your games is when if if you throw this out into the world and um either people don't use a big chunk um, does that make you feel sort of like bad or like that they're playing wrong or are you satisfied with that? One of the things I'm going to add to my session zero section is a discussion of based on what you want your gameplay to be about, you can choose which of these mechanics are important. So it doesn't bother me if they ignore specific things until they 
start messing with how the game works. That would irk me. But like, if they decide there's no basket weavers in the world, I don't care. It's interesting because I think maybe I'm wrong, but I think Jonathan, what you're trying to get at is sort of like these are the elements that potentially do make up that minimum set that the game designer needs in order to feel like justified in in the setting and in the space. So Carr feels that this needs to exist in the game because that it's the vision of the world that he sees. Like he is still doing the the minimum of what is required for world building, but that minimum is much more detailed much than it is. exactly. So Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm satisfying my priorities just as Rob or Fred or anybody else does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just I I wanted to ask direct questions because we get debating and sometimes we say we talk about our feelings and we say that someone else's feelings are are incorrect, but we we have reasons for doing things our own way, um, and yeah. it works for us and. And I'm going okay to be famous, and you guys strong. aren't. So, I mean, you know, yeah. pick what you want. But... <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's I'm... totally okay to be wrong. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my feelings are always right, but you guys yeah. can kind of, you know, yes. as long as you but keep no. it yourself, you guys can do what you want. Anyway, I just wanted people to get a chance to express why they are doing something. That's all. And if anyone else has something to say about their game specifically, I, I didn't ask everyone. So, <laughs> um, yeah. but I thought those were the two con- quite contrasting views about how they build their games. And also, I'm building a universal game, so I'm my agenda of what the gameplay is is to let the players fully decide their own agenda. So mm-hmm. I'm, in all aspects of the design, I'm very careful of not imposing any of my own agenda beyond the simulation that the game is running. Right. What, what about you, Catrice? How do you express sort of like, how do you draw the line between having enough and, and then letting the players or, or yeah, um, where's your line, I guess. My line is a little bit different than most because it's not a solid line. It's a, it's a moving target. Like, if I was to make another game today, it would not use uh, nearly the same uh, position where my current one does. Like, what I'm basing currently is that I produce as much setting and background information and world building as I personally need to be able to know what should be in the game in terms of information for players to actually be able to figure out what they want to do with it, what what's actually present, and so on. But at the same time, I also put a lot of extra information in for myself so that I know what to design, even if it doesn't actually make it onto the paper. Like, I have rules for, like, that I've figured out for how to use faster-than-light travel in the game, except it's not actually, like, technically fast. It basically bends the rules without breaking them kind of thing. But this is yeah, something I, I, that 
Hmm? I was going to say I have I've drafted up rules for firearms, even though this version of the game is not going to use them. Yeah, is it's something but I know that, I need them eventually. It's something that I want to know how it works because I understand how like magic works in my world on an ant on like a an atomic scale. Like I understand how like mana works as a particle. It is nowhere in the book. It's just that because I know how it works, it influences what I can put into the book. Like cold iron as a concept is designed very explicitly to work within the concept of how I have uh, magic working in my world. And everything that I put into the game that happens to relate to magic, such as the aforementioned cold iron or mithril or a calcum and so on as different metals, they all behave consistently to that model. The players don't really need to know what that model is for the way I've set up the game, so they don't need to know it. But they'll find out that if they actually see the model and they look at all of the different stuff, they'll be like, oh, everything actually makes coherent sense. Yeah, But that's just I definitely on my that. end of it. Yeah, I definitely do that as well. Like, so you... I, even, even though I don't include, there's a lot of information I don't include in the game. Like, there's a lot of background information. I, I, same thing with the magic. Like, I know how the magic works down to, like, the, the principles at work in the universe. Like, and that does he, help keep the, the execution um, within a certain consistency at the, at, at, at the level the players are interacting with it. But, again, yes. I don't include that material. Yeah. One... I, I don't even care how the magic works fundamentally at that atomic level. I only care how it gets used. Yeah. yeah Same. Whereas I have never written a game where I knew how magic was going to work in the game. I've tried to write it one. It does. <laughs> yeah. No. So, and, and Kat, sorry, one last thing. Like, so you have, you create the complete picture for yourself because that's needed. And you for want me, to yes. have. A, a full picture for your players. So as you go through playtesting and it gets in front of players, do you see yourself reviewing and picking parts out that it's like, oh, I, I should have left that out. That one was more for me. Like, do you, do you see that happening? Yep. Already done that a couple of times where it's stuff that it's like they've asked questions like, oh, how does this work? And it's like, I already know the answer. I suppose I have to put that in there then. Whereas, <laughs> On the flip side, I just did the opposite of that, where even though I have 151 skills, I just put in on Cavor's advice a half a page of how to make skills, how to make new skills. Yeah. yeah. Now, there is actually something different as well that I found was very difficult with world building for this particular game, was that because it's very open-ended, it's meant to be able to be... Um, focused on the player's characters, not the world. The world is set up very explicitly to only include enough information for the GM to basically put in what's necessary for the players when they get there. So I would absolutely love 
to go into explicit, exquisite detail on a ton of stuff about like all the different creatures that inhabit the world, the different biomes and everything. And it's not going in there. Like it's just not going to be present. It's open in such a way that the very nature of the world was built so that it changes based on what the GM needs. So like literally the the physical properties of the planet that you play on, like the very setting, it's like if you need there to be a mountain to climb overnight, there will be a mountain that will arise there that was not there the day before. <laughs> like that's built right into the very setting, but it means that I want to list everything that's there, but that's not how a GM's actually going to run their game, and that's not really the purpose of the game. So I couldn't put it in there. I'll be putting it into, like, expansion content. Like, I basically built it so I can produce as many planets as I want, but, like, all sorts of wondrous things in the future. I can make up, like, new species, new uh, monsters to fight, new flora and fauna, new, like, uh, cultures and you know biomes and everything i can do this for like 20 years straight and just pump out constant new content once i have the game itself done i can basically make probably a 200 page book every two to three months and i will <laughs> that does not surprise that's- i've seen your forum Holy posts shit. that's an underestimation yeah. <laughs> yeah. but i'm okay, saying so we format it so that so then- it actually is playable okay then i have a question if there's specifically regarding the denizens of the world, like if you're not providing them in the base book, do you provide a process for the players to make them yourself themselves? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's like it's one of those things that it's like I won't include like this biome exists here. It's no, it's like this is how you create a biome. Here's the kind of things that you put inside of it. Um, this is kind of how it works. Like, I haven't got well, all of that in, but I have some I, of it in. I was talking about stuff like, like I have an entire chapter on how to make creatures because that's the whole game is kind of a toolkit. Yeah. But like, like if if you don't put elephant in your book, is there a process? someone at the table can go through to say to prepare for an elephant being in the scene and and being interacted with yep okay that's like the most heavy-handed elephant in the room (laughs) metaphor you could possibly (laughs) do you have there's an elephant in the room what's the elephant in the room that there isn't an elephant in the room yet I think with uh, these are I not mean... the elephants you're looking for. <laughs> oh, uh, but let me say one thing that's funny. Hey, John, just hold your thought. So, Catrice and I go end up at the same thing, except her physical world is the thing that changes, whereas mine just happens narratively. I just assume the physical world was always always there, and the GM is discovering it with along with the players. But she's like, no, no, no. The mountain happens overnight. <laughs> it's just funny to me. It's like, no, it, it's actually the mountain wasn't there in the morning. Now it is. And those are two different states of the universe that we can investigate. Yep. But and there's kind of I a reason to, like, for the that. The mountain was always there. You just didn't notice it. 
because you actually have to requisition the mountain to be applied and there's some stuff that happens around the midpoint of the game where that supply line basically gets interrupted. Because all the Vorgons die? Sort of? Not quite, but basically <laughs> like there, there ends up being like basically the people that are um, running the test and the people that are supplying the capacity the capacity to actually maintain those tests and such, they basically aren't on speaking terms by halfway through. Uh, all right. So you have a meta plot as well. Yeah, I actually have a meta plot. I actually have a ending to the game as well, which is odd. So, no. <laughs> no, it's not. I have an ending too. Just my... <laughs> But, Probably yeah. I just, anyway, I just realized that the main game I'm working on for this chat has an ending too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. My game has an ending. Sort of. I thought My it just had endings end. for specific characters. That's kind of an interesting thing. Like, up until relatively recently, games did not have an ending. I like, think they should. I might just happen to have one. It's incidental. It's not something I, I thought was a good thing. It's just something that happened. Mine's not really an end to the game game. It's more like this is a natural spot that this is basically the end of the campaign. You've basically figured out your character. They've They've gotten their reward. They can do whatever now. You can either continue playing in, like, or make a new character or do whatever. Like, this is up to you at this point, but it's like you have basically done what you came here to do. Yeah, you were yeah, in the same way. That that kind of makes sense for Sierra because the whole game kind of runs on a clock. Okay, so now that we've interrupted Jonathan like a thousand times, what were you going to say? Well, I was going to make a point, but. Uh, as sort of a universal point, but then I'm like, eh, it doesn't work for everyone here. But the comment I was going to make was I find, and I think other people here would agree, that when it comes to world building, it's important, but we also have to really check ourselves so that it doesn't sort of overtake the game itself. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Like, if you just sat me down and said, okay, build like 500 planets, I would do it, and I would enjoy it. <laughs> I and that. I know so that that's is. not the point, and that's why it's been such a struggle for me to actually build this in such a way that it's not very well defined. It's actually very frustrating. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of backed into the the place where doing a universal slash generic system kind of frees me from the the workload of actually developing a specific setting. Yeah, you just have to do something that's much harder because of the <laughs> Well, I can, <coughs> I I can work out the simulation is points of how a setting element works in less time than it would take to actually write it out as metafiction. Yes. 
but what I'm saying is, yeah, it takes less time, but I'm saying the te- the I'm saying engineering systems to do something is innately more complicated than just doing the thing. Yes. Yep. Um, That's very true. On the plus side, though, once you've come up with a system of how to do something, you can do a lot of that something in a row really easy. So it's like, in a game where it's like, oh, you describe every single uh, monster you might encounter and you design each one individually one at a time, as opposed to you design a system for how to build monsters, and then it's like, yeah, it takes like, you know, a lot more effort to build the system to create a monster, but once the system's in place, you can just pump those babies out. Mm-hmm. Or just tell the GM <laughs> what your system is and so they can pump those babies out as they need. Which is what more uh, of a car is doing. Yeah. Well, well the yeah. big the grand the grand I, scheme here is we're both pumping babies out. <laughs> right. My babies. my specific plan regarding creatures is you know however much uh however many pages are left to fill 320 pages i will fill them with monsters huh that's my plan so example monsters but you will tell people how to make monsters obviously yeah the the chapter for making monsters will still be there i will just give I don't know, 60 to 80 entries of the most common monsters that people wouldn't want to make that are ready to go for them to use. What do you mean wouldn't want to make? Uh, Either... Complicated? Because they're boilerplate. Ah, Who wants to sit down and make a wolf or a dog? Or an elephant. Yeah, sure. I assume it's basically things like here's a type of undead, like a zombie. This is what a zombie kind of would look like in this system. This is what a vampire would look like. These are two examples of undead. You can figure out the rest on your own. Yeah. The vampire thing, vampires are definitely going to be in there. And I'm right now trying to figure out what is the expected baseline of a vampire and what it can do. And that's yeah. what's going to go in the book. Nora and I had that discussion. Um, I guess we didn't fully solve it. Oh, well, that's fine. Yeah, which consequently means because of other mechanics in the game, I have to know exactly how vampirism works. Like how it's transferred. <laughs> and what it does because it's a template. Anyway, uh, moving on. <laughs> uh, I, I just wanted to say my personal preference because or this stuff is either like a, a system that uh, doesn't define I guess I can simplify it even more. I like a system that doesn't tell you what that gives you a decent idea of what you're in and doesn't tell you what to do with the things it gives you. Yeah. Like, I like 13th Age and Blades in the Dark settings because they don't tell you how to interpret their setting. They just say, okay, here's a, something you can do what you want with. And then I like uh, just 
I do a lot of urban fantasy because that has a heavily implied setting that says a lot that sets a lot of base rules that you can defy or embrace as you want. And you can do different things and different things. Uh, I've run like five games of Urban Shadows and all of them have had some type of Draugr and not a single one of those Draugr has worked the same way. Yeah. So you prefer to reiterate the same thing rather than doing it once, banking it and and pulling it out as necessary? I do it in a way that would... uh, like fit what the game is or what I want it to do. Like I take the base concept and I twist it for what it, the the thing needs to do in this particular instance, in the moment. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I just I use the the Draugr as something that happens every time because it's a really solid concept that you can go to a lot of really weird ways with, <laughs> or at least my brain can. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's kind of the same dilemma I have with vampires, like mm-hmm. trying to figure out what players expect them to be. Yeah, Vampire the Masquerade went down that 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 route like really hard. They really defined every aspect, and it made it. When I was running, it's like it's there's there's an interesting when you do that. Something I find that happens is the approach at least that I take and that I've noticed other players take becomes more scientific because the boundaries are so well-defined that they can be investigated. Um, And when it's more of a game like um, Monster Hearts or Urban Shadows, where vampirism is like the, the particulars of it are left way up to the players. It's just, here's a, here's a, a bucket and everything that, drinks blood and has uh, but, uh, but vampires fall- also covers the vampires that don't drink blood. <laughs> well, well, thank you for okay. reinforcing my point, but yes, <laughs> yep. like, it's, 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 it's yeah. the kind of thing where it's like, there is no expectation. The players form the expectation and that's part of the world building, you know, but and for you, you are well, defining, like you're defining it really hard in a sense, you know, the vampires, one instance, and there are many instances in other games, especially D&D, where a game takes a concept and executes it a certain way, and that particular vision becomes cemented in the collective consciousness. Yeah. Like Whereas, a... Oh, God. Like a D&D troll. Yeah. Like... And, like, the way White Wolf or Anne Rice or even the stupid sparkly vampire books have changed what vampires are are seen to be. Yeah. Yeah, see, I actually like playing with subverting those things because once everybody knows how something works, then you basically say, yeah, all of those traits that you're aware of they're kind of true but it was basically like a game of telephone so like somebody saw like the ogre and then they told somebody about the ogre and that person told somebody about the ogre and by the time you're done it's like yeah so it's 
it's not actually working quite like you thought it was. It's like, technically, that's kind of true, but it's wrong. Yeah, because... But it's recognized. My in- yeah, my instinct with vampires is to make them historically accurate for medieval Europe, where they're basically like nocturnal, feral cannibals. But players now would not accept that as a vampire. They want something mm. descended from Bram Stoker. Well, yeah, something more Byronic. Yeah, but it's. I think there's room. I mean, the 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 one species of, or I guess subspecies maybe a vampire in my game, is the 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 feral cannibal one, but only because I think that's. That's the one the players would actually fight. Like the aristocratic vampire is something that to me is almost um shouldn't shouldn't be something you can engage in combat because it's it's every conception of it is almost too powerful. Like you have to trap it. You know, like fighting it doesn't do anything. Like it can just turn into mist or you know, escape in any other way. You have to like corner it in some way, like outsmart it. And yeah, you you have to gimp it in order to make it practical. Right, right. But like you know, for the the feral cannibalistic one is something that would engage players and be scary in combat. So that that's why it exists in the game. Um, and I don't have aristocratic vamp. I mean, the hmm. Should I even say that? Yeah, the aristocratic vampires do exist in Ashes, but they're not detailed anywhere. It's one of those things that's that's in a in a piece of the setting that isn't isn't detailed in the book anywhere. Oh, so so they exist in your concept of it, but they don't necessarily exist in all games of Ashes of the Magi. Correct. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm getting to like. I I like like the type of logic that Catrice, that Catrice was talking about, and that's how a lot of my world building happens. But uh, basically, that's actually part of why I like writing in urban fantasy because it allows for a lot of that kind of weirdness, and it allows you to do it in different ways to suit what's going on. And I guess I just wanted to say that before we moved on. Actually, yeah. yeah been basically talking for quite a while now and we've <laughs> mostly covered the points that we were going to so does anybody have any final points they'd like to make um cut all the chaff out of your world make it evocative and then leave it it's pretty good yeah cut chaff make it fun make it interesting um, allow the players to make it interesting. Yes. Which, okay, yes. Allow the players to make it interesting, which is inevitably at some point going to conflict with the cut chaff principle. Well, I think part of it is just, you know, give them a nudge in the right direction of how to make it interesting, kind of like how Mark's uh praxis works with like the questions and everything like mm-hmm. he tells them these are the kinds of things that you're probably going to find interesting so define what's interesting about it so that you can go explore it yep exactly so yeah 
if that is all then in which case thank you to our one listener for listening i still don't know why you're doing this to yourself um <laughs> maybe it's some act of penance uh, <laughs> i would like to think so three hail marys and two episodes of flail forward that's uh, <laughs> that's the currency that is currently the currency i mean <laughs> i hope that you feel better for whatever you've done and you don't feel like suicidal or whatever's bad about this anymore but maybe if you not there'll be more episodes so yeah you have sinned worry. deeply yeah. and you must be <laughs> i'd also like to thank all of the co-hosts because yeah there's no way i could wrangle this on my own so it's great working with such people and also thanks cat oh, for hosting so i didn't have to do anything yeah okay also rob since you're the social media person you get to what? list on social media. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh we're at <laughs> flow forward podcast at gmail.com. Also at flow forward on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You know, and porn find hub. us there. We're and on Pornhub. Hub. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, actually. Yeah, I did make that account. There's nothing uh, posted there yet. But you know, maybe wait, we'll just post an seen? episode. Oh, you better you better log into that account. There there is hours. Oh. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> well, I'm not I guess there's stuff on our Pornhub account now. <laughs> thanks to Fred. Uh, I didn't do it. Although I can kind of guess what might be there. Hmm, I don't know if I want to look now. All right, so. Why don't you, uh, yeah, that's on my bit. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, if you like us and leave us, leave a rate on iTunes. I'll add that in. That's my Again, day. if you do not like us, we're not worth the effort of, you know, thumb downing. Yeah, we're we're just some losers. Wait till Small we get potatoes. and then yeah. and then get angry at us. Yeah, uh, or or you know, you could always tell like all your friends like how awful we suck and you should watch it for penance. <laughs> tell your friends to hate listen to us. We, we wind up with like a literal <laughs> cult following of cultists. <laughs> I'd Just be people who listen to it to get their anger fine. out every day. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll totally support. Listen, if anybody out there wants to start a cult with the seven of us, the seven as the the, the head, be my guest, man. I'll, I'll support you yep. in any way I can. I will. You know, uh, we're not going to give you any official oh, virgin blood. Whoa! Uh, all right. You know, just you at know the, the standard. At that point, the podcast will turn into Kevor's game. <laughs> if if that ever happens, oh well. Yeah, I will have that in my job. Oh, well. Well. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that's it. So, thank you again for putting up with this for whatever bizarre reason you want to do so, and have a good night because it is nighttime where you it's are. It's always nighttime. Always regardless night where you of are. regardless yeah. of. What time zone you're in? It is now nighttime. Go to bed. Go to sleep, nerds. Good night. <laughs>